Hey there, welcome to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. This week on the show, okay, this is exciting. We are talking to Molly Shannon. That's right, Mary Catherine Gallagher herself. She's going to tell us about her time on Saturday Night Live and how she came up with some of the show's all-time memorable characters. Also, we're going to talk about the events of her childhood that kind of sent her on the journey towards comedy and performance. Then we are going to travel all the way to Johannesburg, South Africa, to talk to the musical artist Tuello. Her parents fought apartheid and inspired her to use her voice. She's also going to explain how a public library in Connecticut, of all places, gets a lot of the credit for her unique musical sound. It is going to be a fun, fascinating week here on LiveWire. We're so glad you're here for it. So stick around. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Hey, hey Luke. How's it going? It's going well. Hey, are you ready to play a little station location identification examination? Yes, let's do it. Okay, this is where I throw out some details about a place in the country where Livewire is on the radio. And Elena, you have got to guess where I'm talking about. This is the home of the U.S. National Toboggan Championship, as well as a large fleet of tall-masted schooners known as wind jammers. Mm. Uh, which is a type of merchant sailing ship that was used in the 19th and 20th century. Mm, snow and water. Uh, yes. So okay. that's the key. That'll keep you, that should keep you in a certain quadrant of the country. Is it? I'd see this is the thing is like you don't think about it, but those great lake states had some pretty mm. big ships on them. So it sure. could be not an ocean wind jammer. It could be like a Lake Superior wind jammer. How about this? Edna St. Vincent Millet lived there as an adolescent, and wrote her first well-known poems there. Does that help at all? That's in Maine somewhere. Oh, it's in Camden, Maine. Camden, Maine. We're on the radio on WMEP in Camden. Elena, you never cease to amaze me. I was totally going to go Wisconsin, though. I was thinking that this was a trick question until you dropped the Malay bomb. See? (laughs) I knew that 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 lit detail would light you up. All right. (laughs) Should we get going with our radio show? Oh, sure. Let's do it. All right. Take it away. From PRX, it's Livewire. This week, actor and comedian Molly Shannon. 
Finally, one night, my manager showed up at my door, smelling of like cigarettes and In-N-Out burgers, and he was like, <laughs> "I was like, what? Why are you here?" And he's like, "You got Saturday Night Live and music by Tuello." This record, the message behind it is very peaceful. It's choosing peace constantly. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of LiveWire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks everyone for tuning in from all over the country, including Camden, Maine. I just realized Tuello and Passarello. <laughs> could almost be, you guys could maybe take some kind of show on the road or something. Yeah, Tuello and Passarello. We just need to find, uh, like, Joe Manganello could join us, I guess, the <laughs> actor from Magic Mike, <laughs> Pittsburgh guy. <laughs> all the yellows out there. We have a great show in store for you all this week. We're going to be talking to Tuello and also hearing a song from her and talking to Molly Shannon of Ooh. Saturday Night Live fame and so many other cool project. She's got a new memoir out that we're going to be hearing about as well. We also asked the Livewire listeners a question. Uh, tell us about a time you went over the top. Some of Molly Shannon's characters, mm-hmm. you know, on SNL, in the most delightful of ways, mm-hmm. could go a little over. I mean, Mary Catherine Gallagher could really go kind of over the top. Yeah, extra. So, She's a little extra. Yeah, there you go. That's, that's the more like 2022 parlance. <laughs> so uh, we've got those answers collected up. I hear there's some real amazing ones in there. <laughs> we're going to read those responses coming up a little bit later in the show. First, though, of course, we got to kick things off with the best news we heard all week. This right here is our little reminder at the top of the program that there is some good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what's the best news that you heard all week? I have some news of a new art exhibition. Okay. And the thing that makes this interesting is the story behind... Uh, getting the art onto the wall. Okay. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Okay, so about five years ago, there was a contractor in Watertown, Connecticut named George Martin who was basically just like cleaning out a lot, you know, uh, just sort of like dismantling the barn and getting rid of all the stuff. Nobody wanted any of it. And in the barn, he found a bunch of art, like 50 canvases and some drawings. And some of the art was vaguely automotive in nature. Uh-huh. Like there was these kinds of rep- representations of like headlights and things. This was at like a random estate in Connecticut? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, and it wasn't like he was cleaning out a bunch of stuff to have an estate sale with. It was just like get rid of this junk. But then he called his friend, Jared Whipple, who's an auto mechanic. And I guess he was kind of like, hey, you know, cars, you like cars. And uh, Jared Whipple was like, well, maybe I can put this up in the skate park that I run because of these huge canvases. Oh, I see. He started Googling the name of the artist, Francis Hines. And he discovered that this artist was pretty nationally known. He was born in the 1920s and died in 2006. But in the 70s and 80s, he was New York City's premier rap artist. And that's W-R-A-P, rap. Meaning he would rap things up in something else? That's right. He covered all of these really iconic landmarks in New York City in fabric, like JFK, part of the airport, what? the Washington Square, that beautiful uh-huh. arch that's in all the romantic comedies and yeah. it's down by NYU. Uh, the Port Authority got the Francis Hines rap treatment. And rapping is also a part of these canvases that Jared Whipple found in the dumpster. He spent four years getting to know the legacy of this artist, connecting with dealers that worked with Francis Hines's work, 
uh, finding uh, surviving family members. I think his two sons are still alive. And he became very, very invested in this yeah. this artist um, and really wanted to find uh, an audience for these paintings. He set up a couple of exhibitions, the biggest of which is happening very, very soon at the Hollis Taggart Galleries in New York. And they have appraised the selected art that Jared Whipple has put up for auction. And that collection, they think, is going to be worth millions of dollars. Oh. The large canvases are going to probably go for about 22 k a pop. The drawings for about 5 k But the way that this article that I read describes it, the real treat for Jared Whipple, the real honor, has been uh, learning about Francis Hines. And now, even as much as the money, he says, I just want this man to take his rightful place in the history books as this really interesting and important artist who, I guess, just happened to have just a bunch of paintings in a (laughs) barn in one of the places that he lived toward the end of his life. (laughs) That is like the most satisfying antiques roadshow outcome I've never stayed awake through an entire Antiques Roadshow. I've never made it to that moment where somebody gets surprised. It's like golf. There's a little trip to fend mm-hmm. just layered in there. Although I think we learned eventually that trip to fend isn't really what makes you sleepy from Turkey. Is that right? I, I think that was the latest on that. But listen, we're not here to talk about food science. We're here to talk about <laughs> loud porcupines, Elena. Oh, of course we are. That is, <laughs> that's the best news that I saw this week. There are these porcupines, four of them, that were rescued from the Caldor Fire, which was in the Greater Lake Tahoe area. And the wild porcupine in California is actually a very kind of understudied species because they're very shy and they just kind of stay in trees. And so not a lot is known about them. They also don't think there are a whole lot of them living in California. But unfortunately, because of these wildfires, they had these four porcupines that were burned and injured pretty badly by the fire. So some folks from the Lake Tahoe Wildlife uh, Care Group went out to get them. By the way, the way you get a porcupine, (laughs) um, one of the handlers explained, is uh, you take a cat carrier Uh and you put some blankets around it and you make the porcupine think that it's like a safe little snuggy nook like an underground hole to go into because that's how they got one of these, I think it was P2 to go into. Because you're not picking those critters up, I'm assuming. Like, I mean, I've heard they're pokey. So I yeah. think you're kind of maybe you're just encouraging them, but also, you know, you don't want to stress them out too much. So they get these four porcupines, P1, P2, P3, and P4, <laughs> and they get them back to the Lake Tahoe Wildlife Care facility. And, you know, they they needed a lot of, a lot of rehabbing, a lot of TLC P1, uh, had uh, his eyes were burned pretty badly. His nose was actually burned closed and his quills, some of his quills got burned off. Oh, so this was really no. kind of life and death for these porcupines. So they're nursing them back to health. They're taking care of them and they start videotaping them hmm? and putting up the videos on the Instagram page of uh, Lake Tahoe Wildlife Care. And it turns out that porcupines can be pretty verbal, not like <laughs> necessarily out in the wild unless they need to, but when they're in captivity, like for instance, um, porcupines don't like being woken up early in the morning. Huh. They had to wake up P3 one time to like clean his cage uh-huh. and he was sleepy. And this is what it sounds like when a porcupine does not want you waking him up early in the morning to clean his cage. And there's a little shake here. <laughs> he shakes his quills. Yeah, he's like, yeah, come on, come on, give me some space here. I'm trying to sleep. 
very Marge so, Simpson sounding. I know. I, I watched that video on their Instagram page like three or four times. I was like, is the porcupine making this noise? It's so human sounding. <laughs> um, but the great news is, and why I think this is my best news for this week, is that they are going to be releasing these porcupines back into the wild. They're they, better. They're all better. They got oh, their quills back. They yeah. got their noses unstuck. Oh, they, like, yay. They're taking them back out, and they're going to release them back out into the uh, wild out there near Lake Tahoe. So. And when they then that little cat carrier door opens, that P3 <laughs> is just going to be like, <laughs> The fact, Elena, that you can do a very spot-on porcupine impression, that is actually the best news that I've heard all week. <laughs> All right, let's welcome our first guest on over to the show. She's an Emmy-nominated actor and comedian, was cast member on Saturday Night Live for six seasons, where she was known for her characters like Sally O'Malley and Mary Catherine Gallagher, among others. She's also starred in lots of films, including Superstar, Wet Hot American Summer, and Other People, for which she won an Independent Spirit Award. And this week, she's releasing a new, deeply personal and funny memoir titled Hello, Molly, and we are so excited to have her joining us from her front porch down in the greater Los Angeles, California area. Molly Shannon, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) We are such fans and so glad that this worked out. This book is so fascinating and blunt, like in the best way. Like it just feels so honest. I was curious, is it a different muscle? I mean, because you write a lot of comedy and have written a lot of stuff comedically, but this is a book book. Yeah, it's a real different muscle. It's very different. And you really can't know what it is until you just start doing it. There's no way. I, I And as much as you might think, oh, I know where this book is going to go. Once you're really into it, it's like, oh, you know, you really <laughs> learn a lot about what you want to reveal and don't want to reveal and how to do it. And it's really hard. I have so much respect for people who read books. It's, it's one of the hardest things I've done. I, I think it's hard. Yeah. The prologue of this book um, describes something that you, in the book, write, changed your life forever. Um, This was Mm -hmm. the car accident where you uh, lost your mother and your sister and your cousin, and Mm -hmm. your dad was at the wheel. I I think what's surprising to folks who've who've had a chance to read the book is that you did have such a kind of strong relationship and close relationship with your dad after this, because there could have been a universe in which you resented him or even the people in your family you know, resented him because he was at the wheel when this happened. He Mm -hmm. had been drinking previously in the day. It's a little Mm -hmm. unclear if that contributed or not. Yeah. Was that, did you ever have to make a conscious choice as a kid? I'm going to like be close to my dad despite this? No, it was never like that. I never blamed him for that. I thought of it as a car accident. Mm -hmm. And um, he never wavered from his story to his death. When, when we did talk about it, he was like, it was an all day party and tonight And he had taken a nap and then they left later at night, like whatever, nine at night. And he asked my mom to drive and she was like, no, you're fine. You can drive. A group of people walked him out to the car to say goodbye. Um, You know, it was was also a different time. It's 1969. Mm -hmm. We have a lot more awareness now about drinking and driving. We have Mothers Against Drunk Driving. We have friends don't let friends drive drunk. It was Mm -hmm. a different time too. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's okay, but... When I was doing research for the book, I finally, for the first time in my life, was like, you know what? I'm going to Google where my cousin's graduation party was and where the site of the accident was. 
And I just don't know why I never wanted to think about that before, but I did it like a, a few months ago. And I was mm. like, oh my God, I had no idea that he had driven for 90 minutes before wow. they crashed. And we were 18 minutes from home. Mm. So that was really like, uh, you know, it was, I, I'm not defending his behavior. I I don't like getting into a debate about it all, but, but anyhow, sure. I chose to believe my father and his version of events. So it wasn't like I need to decide to forgive him. It was not like that growing up. No, I know. I, I did not blame him. Yeah, and you make it very clear in the book that your dad's um, sort of belief in you and the way he found you to be so funny and entertaining and charming really gave you the confidence to have the career that you've had, which I want to talk about uh, right after we take this quick break. This is Live Wire Radio. We're talking to Molly Shannon. She's got a new memoir out, Hello, Molly. We've got to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a moment. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. ZBiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. ZBiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make ZBiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com slash livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. ZBiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to ZBiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We're talking to Molly Shannon from her front porch in Los Angeles uh, about her new memoir, uh, Hello, Molly. Um, there is a lot in the book about your father, both the circumstances of your early life, where your your mom and, and sister and cousin passed away, but also just growing up kind of with a single dad doing his best, and then into your entertainment career where he was very, very into you being on (laughs) SNL and things like that. I want to talk about your SNL audition. That's like the stuff of legend in the comedy world, like the SNL audition moment. What happened for you? Like what, how did yours go? I couldn't believe that I was even asked to audition. I had been wanting to get on the show five years before that. And Mm -hmm. Lauren Michaels was looking at tapes and I was doing comedy in LA. I was doing, um, I had a comedy group we called ourselves a lumber company. And so I heard Lauren was looking for women on the show and I made a five minute reel. I used all my waitressing money to make this tape and I had mm. had an editor and I was so proud of it, but I found out that I was passed over and he wasn't going to, you know, bring me to New York to audition. I was on a payphone on the, <laughs> on, on the corner of Fountain and Vine in uh-huh. Hollywood near my apartment across in El Pollo Loco when I found out he wasn't going to bring me in. I cried. Oh. Nobody wants to get that news in front of an El Pollo Loco. No. No, exactly. No, not, not the place for it. Yeah. So then I just figured, oh, whatever. You know what? If they ever come back again, I'm going to be ready. And they did come back five years later. And I was much more ready. I had an arsenal of characters. 
I had really developed these characters in a stage show, you know, Sally O'Malley, Mary Catherine. I knew they worked. I was doing them in front of an audience. So I was much more ready. So they came back again and they go, we want another, we want a tape. And I was like, no, 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 no. You can't have a tape. You've got to come see my live show (laughs) or otherwise I'm not going to audition because I felt like a tape would be too easy for them to say no. Hmm. So, um, so they were like, okay. So Marcy Klein flew out to see my stage show, loved it. The show went so well. Then she was like, you're coming to New York to audition. So that was the setup. And then we all got flown, a bunch of women. Um, We flew on the same flight. Oh, no. And um, yeah, it was kind of like- And then they put you up at a stand-up club. I think we're at Stand Up New York the night of the audition. And you get five minutes of time and you get to do five characters. And they have everybody backstage together. Mm. And Marcy Klein was so helpful. She was a producer. So I had called and asked her before my audition. I was like, can I bring my comedy partner, fly him in too? And she was like, sure, we can. Yeah, you can fly him in. And I was like, can I bring wigs? And she was like, yeah, bring wigs. <laughs> and then I was just like, okay. And the audience that's in the club thinks they're going to see stand-up. So they're not an easy audience to make laugh. They're, huh. they're really like, what is this character? They were <laughs> difficult. And so I remember starting the first character. I forget what character it was, but I remember kind of bombing and I was like, oh God, I don't know if this is going well. And I look out into the audience and I see Lauren Michaels and Chris Farley was there. And I was uh. like, oh my God, Chris Farley. And I was just happy that I'd gotten to that point in my life. I was very mm-hmm. grateful just being from Cleveland, not knowing anybody in town. I was like, I can't believe I even made it this far. Then when I went back to LA, people were like, I heard you're going to get SNL. And I was like, really? I haven't heard anything. And, um, and then finally one night my manager showed up at my door, my manager, Stephen Levy at night, he came knocking on my door in Hollywood smelling of like cigarettes and in and out burgers. And he was like, <laughs> I was like, what, why are you here? And he's like, you got Saturday night live. So that wow. was it. Huh? Yeah. I was so surprised when I was reading that you were actually only on SNL for six seasons because you had so many iconic characters. Mm -hmm. I would have guessed it was, I'm sure you felt every one of those six seasons while you were (laughs) performing, but like, you know, you really had success with the characters that you created, which brings me of course to Mary Catherine Gallagher. I remember the Monday after Mary Catherine Gallagher debuted on SNL. And I remember, and Elena, you might've had the same experience. I remember Mm -hmm. going to school and we were all doing Mary Catherine Gallagher impressions. We were putting our fingers in our armpits. We were saying superstar. We were like boys, girls. It was a (laughs) phenomenon. Yeah. Oh my God, thank you. Same with Sally O'Malley. Every time you forgot something, you'd go, I'm 50. Like every time you lost your car, you failed a test. (laughs) Oh my God, thank you. That's so sweet. And it was really hard to get that character on too, actually. Mary Catherine or Sally O'Malley? Mary Catherine. Okay. Because actually, I was doing that character in my stage show, and there was a woman who had called herself a talent scout for SNL who wasn't officially. She was much <laughs> more into boys than girls. And I remember thinking, oh, she's missing all the girls. Like, why are like, what? And then um, Marcy Klein ended up really taking over as a talent scout, which was much better news for me because I was like, oh, good, get this other person out of the picture. She's not helping me. And when that other woman got wind that I was being asked to audition for SNL, she goes, I just have one bit of advice for you. Don't ever do that character, Mary Catherine Gallagher, because you'll never get hired. Oh my will God. hate that little, you know, character. So I, I ended up not doing Mary Catherine Gallagher for my audition. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So when I got onto the show, I put the character in the read-through. Steve Corin helped me write my first Mary Catherine Gallagher 
And he said, well, tell me exactly what you do in your show. And maybe we can like write that up. And I was like, okay. So we typed up our first sketch. I go, well, I come on and I go like this and I trip on a chair. And so we just wrote that up together. <laughs> then I put it in the read through. Anyhow, Lauren did really like it. And he was like, you know what? I like that, Mary Catherine Gallagher. Let's wait till next week when Gabriel Byrne comes oh, and right. we'll make him the priest. <laughs> but then what happened was for the dress rehearsal before the live show at eight o'clock, the stuff that they don't really believe in is usually at the bottom, stuff that's going to get cut and won't make it to the live show. And so Mary Catherine was at the very bottom of the dress schedule. And I was like, oh, no, I think they're not understanding what this is going to be. And I knew because I'd done it for years in my stage show, I knew it could destroy, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't think they're understanding what this is going to be physically. So I was like, oh, I felt kind of mad. I was like, I'm going to have to really show them. And I'm going to have to blow the roof off the house. And, <laughs> and so I went crazy during that dress rehearsal. Um, and then um, basically between the dress show and air, the entire cast goes into Lorne Michaels' office. It's like 1110 at night. It's like 20 minutes, 15 minutes before the live show. Or it's like 1115. And sometimes you're still in, in your cupcake costume or whatever for a sketch, <laughs> for the cupcake sketch that gets cut. And I'm looking and I'm looking and I, and Mary Catherine Gallagher got moved from the bottom of the show to the top. And I was like, yes! Superstar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it wow. was just like the greatest. And Jim Brewer said that he'd never heard a response like that before. He said you could hear like a roar from the audience when it was done, like a roar echoing through. And it was a great lesson for me because I really wrote from myself, from my heart. I wrote it, mm. a character that's an exaggerated version of kind of how I felt when I was little. And I couldn't believe people related to it so much. I was like, wow. So the day after it aired, people were like, that reminds me of my sister. Yeah. That's like my, 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 my cousin. Oh, my God. And people started coming up to me in the streets and stuff. We are talking to Molly Shannon here on Livewire. She's got a new memoir out called Hello, Molly. Um, I feel like we could talk for hours and hours about all of the different amazing characters that you've created in, in different things. One that comes to my mind right now, because I just got done watching it, is your character on The White Lotus, oh, which man. is like just one of the more <laughs> maybe unintentionally or intentionally cruel characters I've seen in a long yeah. time. You seem so kind and big hearted, especially in reading this memoir. Like, how do you connect with like a character, like the kind of sort of stepmom from hell, like you did in the white <laughs> Lotus? Um, well, that was a character. I think I've known people like that who are just very in their own world. She's just it lives in her own world. She's always had money. Mike white really helped me because mm. he, he's a really good director. So he was like, I yeah. want it really natural. You don't have to act like a rich <laughs> lady. You don't have to be like, like some, you know, so he's like, she's always had money. You know, she mm -hmm. just, she doesn't even understand why somebody would want to work. She's like, why would you, why would you want to get a job? That makes no sense. You know, like, she's just like, you should be on boards. Then you're, you know, and right. do that and committees. And then you're asking yourself for money. She's just so self-centered, right. you know? So it was a really fun character to play. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting take on it too, which is that a lot of people who uh, maybe are very wealthy wouldn't think of themselves as being as corrosive as they are. It doesn't even occur to them right. the impact they're having on other people, like the impact your character's having on her new daughter-in-law. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. She just doesn't think about that. She's thinking about her son and herself, and she wants her son to be happy, and she needs to set her straight and go, honey, 
Here's what you need to do. You got to make my boy happy and don't complicate it for yourself. Here's what my boy needs. Mm. So it's, it's old fashioned and, but these are her values. This is what she thinks. And I never want to make fun of that point of view. There are people that actually think that way. You know what mm. I mean? And, um, I tried to really understand how this woman thinks. Mm-hmm. We are running short on time here, but a couple of more questions. Um, in the book, you write about the experience of realizing that your dad is gay and eventually him sort of confirming that for you. And you write in the book that when you realized this, it, your heart grew about a thousand sizes. I'm curious <laughs> yeah. why that was your uh, your reaction. Um, I guess because I felt, I, I didn't know that. So it made the drinking make more sense, the anger. I think if you can't be who you're meant to be, mm-hmm. you know, be with who you want to be, follow your heart's desires, your, your, what you're passionate about, who you're attracted to. That's such a hard life. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's good for anyone. And I think straight people have to defend gay people, stand up for them and stick, mm. stick up for them and not allow them to be bullied. And, and I just felt compassion that he was born maybe a generation or two too early. He was born in mm. 1926 and maybe it wasn't an option to come out. He was mm-hmm. scared. Mm-hmm. He's scared he'll be made fun of or maybe his family would abandon him. Mr. O'Neill, his friend, he had to defend in grade school. Mr. O'Neill was called a sissy and, you know, he was defending Mr. O'Neill. So he's like, I don't want to act like that. I got to, you know, act macho or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I felt compassion for him and love because I cared about my father and I admired him and I knew what a good person he was. There are some yeah. great pictures of the two of you in yeah. this book, yeah. which like the words in this book are really good. I want people to understand that. Like it's a great read, but yeah. from a photographic standpoint, it's actually really charming as well to just see you at different stages of life. And oh, I mean, good. there's a moment where you're in your, your Catholic school uniform, where you'd look like a 12 year old Mary Catherine Gallagher, like mm-hmm. a lot of stuff yeah. about your career really mm-hmm. kind of makes sense oh, from the good. photographs. I'm wondering if, if, if your life had gone differently, if that accident hadn't happened, do you think you would have still ended up in the career that you've ended up in? You, you write in the book that that event for you uh, caused a sense of urgency. Yeah. I'm wondering if you've ever thought about what a different version of your life would be if that wouldn't have happened to you. Yeah, that's interesting because I wanted to make people laugh. I want to please people, entertain. And I think that that type of setback early gave me a resilience that made mm-hmm. me make it in show business and mm-hmm. a kind of bounceability. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, and and then when you when you lose a parent, I lost my mom when I was four. You feel defective. You feel like there's something wrong with you. So it's a great great start to go into show business because you, <laughs> sure. you, you, you want to have you as know? much insecurity as possible. Yeah, it does. Before it does. anyone turns you down after an audition, you want to start with a baseline of self loathing. Right, exactly. But it does um, it does give you a drive and stuff. So no, maybe, maybe I wouldn't have, I I don't know. Or if I had pursued it, I probably would have been a lot healthier, but now I have to say that I think the whole thing of feeling like you don't measure up and all that, it's so exhausting. And I think, (laughs) you know, no matter what level you're at, people are still insecure and it's like, Oh my God, it's just an exhausting life. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't like to think that way. I'm like, uh, I I don't want to live my life that way anymore. Yeah. Super taxing. I, I think it's great to find work that you like to do and be passionate. And it's like life is so short and precious that now I like Mm. to just enjoy being in the arts, being creative and, Mm. you know, and enjoy that. Like, why do you have to compare? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Molly, for uh, taking the time to talk to us. 
The book is Hello, Molly. It's a memoir from the great Molly Shannon here on Liveware. Thanks, Molly. Bye, Luke. Bye, Elena. Thank you. Such a fun interview. Hey, special thanks this episode to Jenny Reed Stout of Tualatin, Oregon. Jenny is part of the Livewire member community and is generously supporting our show with a donation each month, which is very much appreciated because it's how we're able to keep doing the show each week and each month. So thank you to Jenny for keeping Livewire going. This is Livewire. As we do each week, we asked our listeners a question. Since we've got a couple of multi-talented, multi-hyphenate guests on the show this week, uh, we wanted to ask about performing and maybe even sometimes going a little over the top. We asked the question, tell us about a time you went over the top. Elena, you've been collecting up those responses. Uh, What are you seeing? I am seeing a plethora of good stories. So sit back, relax. It's story time, ladies and germs. (laughs) Uh, How about this one from Jesse? Jesse went over the top in this way. I used to think it was really neat to do gymnastic tricks when I was drinking. My best friend couldn't tolerate it any longer. So one night when I was showing off and then proceeded to pass out while doing the splits, he left me there and went to bed. I was slumped over in the splits until I woke up the next morning and I could barely walk. (laughs) The human body is capable of really surprising things when it's imbibed enough alcohol, I guess. Yes. Overnight in the splits position. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how... My body, like, always turns fetal. Like, anytime it falls Mm -hmm. asleep, it could be on an airplane, it could be (laughs) drinking in the backyard. There's, I always curl up into a little bitty ball. You go right back into the womb, basically. The splits, I would think my subconscious would just be like, get out of that position, but hey. I have a friend, a dear friend, who when uh, she is um, had a certain number of drinks likes to start engaging in something she calls feats of strength, which is just (laughs) figuring out who at this barbecue can I pick up and going around, getting consent, but just going around and trying to pick up as many people who are consenting to that happening. And it almost always ends with people lying on the lawn because the final feat of strength was too challenging. That reminds me of, remember when we had Barry Sonnenfeld on and he said uh-huh. he's challenged like half of the luminaries of cinema to leg wrestling and the yes. only person who ever beat him was Kelly Ripa. <laughs> the things you remember from this show, Elena, are great. All right. Uh, what's another time one of our listeners went over the top? Oh, I love this one from Megan. Megan says, for my friend's birthday, I woke her up with a parade by her house that included many of our friends who were in the marching band. Her neighbors did not love it, but she was very touched. I want that. I want a parade. Mm -hmm. I want a parade by my house at any time, including my death. My funeral could be a Mm -hmm. second line and that would be, I'd be so happy. We will, we'll, we'll honor your wishes. Thank you. I mean, I'd like to be alive so I could see it. Maybe I should Tom Sawyer it and just like be hiding behind them. <laughs> well, this is, I mean, a way to do it. Uh, my two friends, uh, Robert and Robin, when they uh, got married in Seattle at uh, Pike Place Market, they had this really great Quaker ceremony. And then, so we gathered together and kind of honored that moment. And then the reception was at this Mexican restaurant, like five blocks away. And none of us knew this was going to happen, but a pep band from like, I think the University of Washington or maybe it was a local high school just showed up. So it was like maybe 
12 or 15 people. And then they did. They just kind of second lined us over to the restaurant. I'd never like not growing up, you know, anywhere near New Orleans. Like this was a new experience for me, but it was one of the most fun five block walks of my life. People are like throwing flowers out of the windows and like <laughs> everyone's into it. Just this impromptu wedding parade. Yeah. That's a reason to get married right there. I don't even care who yeah. the guy is. Like if I could get a parade <laughs> out of it. It's just sounds so cool. Maybe my next wedding, I'll go for that. Okay, one more uh, way that one of the listeners has gone over the top. Oh, I love this one from Cam. Cam says, one time my friend invited me to a brunch party in his huge backyard. He was always throwing big parties, so I wasn't surprised when he said there'd be 50 guests. I love to bake. He asked me to make my famous homemade bagels, so I spent all Friday and Saturday making eight dozen bagels for this epic brunch. But when I got there, there were only a few guests because he said 15, not oh. 50. <laughs> One five, not five zero. Yeah, but it wasn't a total loss, Cam says. I had bagels in my freezer for weeks. <laughs> yeah, those will keep, right? I Yeah, I, don't, I guess so. I mean, no bagel ever lasts in my house longer than like 12 seconds. So I feel like when I was a kid, maybe just because I didn't grow up uh, having a lot of stuff that was sort of artisanal, bagels were these big kind of doughy things that came in a, you know, plastic bag from the grocery store. Yeah, and same. now I just feel like the trend is they're, they're smaller, they're crustier. I mean, they're better, let's be honest. But the, mm -hmm. my whole conception of a bagel and what is a good bagel now is like way different mm -hmm. in adulthood than when I was a kid. I feel the way about bread in general. I don't think mm -hmm. I was really taught what bread is supposed to taste like until I was like 30 years old. <laughs> my complaint with bread when I was a kid was I was always the kid bringing my lunch to school and somehow my sandwich was two heels. Aww. It was like the front and the back of the bread because I was, you know, there's seven kids. We were going through a lot of bread. And I'd get the two heels and my mom would sometimes pack my lunch in the bag the bread came in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like never a great day. Well, thank you to everyone who sent in responses to our listener question. We've got another one coming up uh, at the end of this program related to next week. So stick around for that. In the meantime, you are tuned in to Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Our musical guest this week is a singer and songwriter who blurs the lines between punk, soul, and rock drawing inspiration from the great traditions of South African protest music and the polyrhythms and tonalities of her native Moana tribe. Afropunk calls her performances an inspiring and spiritual experience. Her first studio album, The Life of Margaret Cornelius, was released earlier this year. Guitar Girl magazine described it as mystical, soulful, and sometimes haunting. Let's welcome Tuello to Livewire. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Thanks for having me. This might be geographically the the most remote of these interviews that we've done since the kind of new version of the show, thanks to the pandemic. Where are you joining us from right now? I am in Johannesburg, South Africa. <laughs> We're actually doing some recordings, so um, very happy. Normally, geographically, I'm very far from my band. Then in South Africa, mm. and I'm in the U.S., so this is really cool. You have a really fascinating backstory. Um, you grew up on a rural farm in South Africa. I'm curious what your musical life was like as a kid on that farm. My musical life, I mean, South Africans sing really well. So <laughs> <laughs> it's just like listening to people sing anywhere and everywhere really well in harmony. Like 
You know, like sometimes when I'm in South Africa, I'm like, oh my gosh, did everyone just join in in harmony? So I grew up with that. <laughs> and then I come from also a, a, a traditional background, like even writing music. So um, there's a lot of my traditional polyrhythms that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. And um, South Africa is very diverse. Um, I got to listen to a, a lot of things but I think that where I really come from is that polyrhythmic uh, sound and a lot of singing you're part of the Motwana tribe yes I'm Motwana but I've heard you say that you kind of think of the music of that tribe as being essentially rock and roll yes the way I interpret it is like before when I used to listen to like you know, rock music, I go, oh my gosh, did they hear it from us? <laughs> you know? <I> just, <laughs> Were you like hearing Bon Jovi or something out on the farm in South Africa thinking they might have ripped that off from my tribe? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, to the point where like when you're listening to, to even Bon Jovi or you're listening to the Rolling Stones, it's just like, no, I know where that's from. Mm. <laughs> I know where they got it from. Wow. They're just not saying. So um, I think I kind of grew up with that. I mean, were you, even though you were living in, um, you know, in a somewhat remote part of the globe, were you still getting uh, a lot of exposure to a lot of musical influences, some of which might be surprising to people? I mean, were you hearing New Kids on the Block, things like that? Um, Not so much. So at some point, well, we did hear some music, but South Africa, um, there was a point in South Africa where all of the music as you hear it now because of the internet, it took so long for it to show up. When I got to the U.S., I really mm. got to, you know, there's a library. I was in Connecticut at some point, and the library in this little town was so great. Like, there was so much music, like music I I had never heard before. <laughs> the Nina Simones and all of this music that I did. I actually didn't know Feeling Good was Nina Simone. I didn't know who that was. And so mm. I just became obsessed and I took everything from the library and I listened to it. And I was like, I think I was most exposed then. And I was like, oh, I, I think I can do this, but let me not tell anyone. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. Wow, because you moved uh, from South Africa to the U.S. when you were uh, about 17. 17. Right. And lived in the U.S. and, and then performed with, a, with some really notable performers, Paul Simon, Hugh Masekela, things like that. And then at some point... You decided to go back to South Africa for a period of time. What was that that process like for you? Why did you decide to go back to South Africa at some point? So I moved very young and I was all by myself for a very long time. And I think deciding to come to South Africa was I'd already put out St. Margaret, which was a single and the EP then. And I just knew already that I needed to do this well. I needed also just grounding. I needed to feel some mm. love, um, which like when you were all by yourself, it just is so, so strange. So after a while, I, I think I lost confidence, really. <laughs> I got home and I like come from where the Kalahari Desert starts, actually. And so like in like my little desert town, I just got to meet like amazing guitarists, amazing drummer, amazing bassist, and which was great because, you know, for the longest time, everyone was like, oh, you're doing rock and like, you're the South African girl. How did you do that? Did you listen to, to Rolling Stones? And like, when I got here, these guys are rock and rollers. And I was just like, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I'm not the only one. So I needed to come back a better, fuller human being. <laughs> I don't know how to say it, you know, so... 
We're talking to Tuello right here on Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we'll be back with more, including a live musical performance. So stay with us. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season, formerly known as Tea Chai Tay. Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. We are talking to musical artist Tuello about her new album, The Life of Margaret Cornelius. Now, I'm curious, is Margaret Cornelius, is that an alter ego of yours? Is that an amalgamation of a few different people? Who's Margaret Cornelius? So it's more of a spirit in which I wrote the record. Um, I really wanted to embody and present my first full piece that really spoke of special women who were not seen in the world who was special to me, including my mother um, and sisters and aunts and women in my community. Um, And I also wanted to tell the story of people who chose peace from trouble, uh, from troubling times. And so I kind of wanted to to bring all of that in one. And Margaret Cornelius is basically, Margaret is my mother, Cornelius is my father. And they're the Mm. most peaceful people I know. Like, they always choose peace. And so I kind of wanted... This record, even though it sounds morbid, I think the the message behind it is very peaceful. It's choosing peace constantly. Your parents were active uh, trying to change the apartheid policies in South Africa. It's interesting to hear uh, you say your parents are the most peaceful people you know. I wonder what it's like for them and other South Africans who lived much of their life under that regime to be peaceful. I mean, is that something that is always going to live in the minds and the hearts of the people who went through it? I think so. Um, it's, you know, it's something that I don't think they they try to think about often. But when I try to talk of it, I think they just want to resist having to, you know, th- there's not a space in South Africa that allows for people to actually go through that yet, I think. Um, it will come later, but, um, yeah, they, you know, they, they're they not ready to even talk about it. I think it's also a cultural thing where, you know, you have to move on. <laughs> you just have to keep it moving. Do what you need to do mm-hmm. um, and not also dwell on the pain that others have caused you. Is is that, I mean, experience for you as well, is that woven into this record somewhere sort of subtly? Absolutely. I mean, I'm going to kind of <laughs> unpack this situation. Ah. And the story of trouble really in the record is what the whole record's about. So um, mm. in my family, and I think other Botswanas can talk about how, you know, um, thousands and thousands of years ago when there were tribal wars before we were colonized, uh, Botswanas decided 
we're not very like we're not warring people. We'll poke you, but we won't like we won't fight. We don't want to fight. We like we're not fighters. And so we ran away from like the coast and other areas to move to the desert to not be in war. You know, like not fight for territory. And so we chose to go where you least expect. Where no one wants to be, not not even colonizers wanted to be in the desert, and so we got there and we got diamonds and gold and things and just like really really amazing、um, minerals and precious metals and that kind of thing. So、um, the story is to say really that if you're in a time of trouble, you should go where it's least expected. You should you know you should go and and find your desert and maybe you'll find diamonds. So, so basically, this is the whole record, really. Well, that's a great setup for the song that we're about to hear,、uh, "Trouble."、Um, this is Tuello live from Johannesburg, South Africa, here on Livewire. Take it away. A bullet for life can make you fear. In this atmosphere, you take a silent. There, you could be here. Inside, save the babies. We drown out all the enemies. I don't want you trouble. Surrounded by this crazy thing, happy I am here. You almost dragged me down to suffocate with you. There, you could be here. This sight we say is crazy. We don't know the enemy.
Toello and her band. Toello, thank you so much for, for coming on Livewire and, and playing for us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was Toello right here on Livewire. Her album, The Life of Margaret Cornelius, is available now. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to be talking to acclaimed chef, two-time Top Chef finalist on Bravo, Gregory Gorday. We're going to talk about addiction and recovery and the restaurant industry and this amazing cookbook that he has out and also how his Haitian heritage inspired his latest restaurant undertaking. We're also going to talk to Julian Saperiti about how he transformed his doctoral research on Asian American history into concerts and albums and films all under the name No-No Boy. It's this really incredible multimedia history project he's been doing. Uh, we're also going to be looking to get your answers to our listener question, which is what this week, Elena? What is your surprising cooking hack? Mm. Quesadilla in the toaster. I just like to throw a slice of American cheese just right on a cracker. Is that a cooking hack? <laughs> that's a cooking snack. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's different. Yeah. All right. If you have a cooking hack that you would like to share with us, you can uh, let us know by way of social media. We are at Livewire Radio uh, just about everywhere where social media is happening. All right. That is going to do it for this week's episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, Molly Shannon and Tuello. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Special thanks this week to Kevin Wenzel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Subchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. Our marketing manager is Paige Thomas. And our production fellow is Tanvi Kumar. A. Walker Spring composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Jenny Reed Stout of Tualatin, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Livewire. When we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.